Welcome to Questioning Your Answers podcast, where we explore beauty and transform our narratives. Today, we continue to explore some intriguing questions with our friend Jeff Turner. Yes, and Jeff, um, I'd really love for you to start the conversation with a bit of your story, how you went from being a successful pastor in your 20s with all the right, in inverted commas, questions, hmm. or should I say answers, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and went from that to beginning to probe and honestly question some of your most dearly held beliefs and some of the most fundamental beliefs to you. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as you said, I, I, I became a pastor very young. Um, my wife and I, I was two weeks 19 when we got married and we left for Florida to attend a Bible college. And um, after graduating, we moved back to our hometown and we came on staff um, at the church that I grew up in, basically. And, um, you know, we, we served on this staff for 12 years as pastors and it was a, it, it was a wonderful experience. Um, it was our career. It was what we had planned on doing for the rest of our lives. And I don't mean to brag, but I'd say we were pretty darn good at it. And, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we had a lot of successes, um, you know, really did have a lot of successes, but, um, but the thing with me, and um, my wife, my wife can attest to that, is that I am an obsessive personality. And um, when I get my hooks into something, I get my hooks into something. And for me, or when something get gets its hooks into me, I suppose, I don't know which way it goes, but I very, at a, probably 16, maybe 15 or 16 years old, we were our lives were impacted by the renewal movements of the 90s and uh, specifically the Pensacola Brownsville revival if you're familiar with that at all um right yeah had a had a major major impact on our lives and we took several trips down there as teenagers and um that's actually where we ended up moving and we're a part of that whole scene and movement and if you know anything about it it differed um, not necessarily in the sorts of manifestations and things like that and enthusiasms that were expressed in the meetings um, from Toronto, mm -hmm. um, but it differed in message very much. And the message that was preached more in the Toronto movement was more about the father's love and very much things that I can still jive with. But yeah. what was taught in Pensacola was very much a, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it was a very heavy handed repentance message. It was Basically, get okay. saved every night. Question your salvation every night. If you're doing this, I question whether you're even a Christian. If you do this, I question whether you ever had a genuine experience with God. And it was every single night just being bombarded with that message. And so that yeah. that did something to me. And it caused me, it, it really, um, it seized upon my already obsessive personality and really just sort of exacerbated that problem. Mm -hmm. And I became very, very, I, I was as intense as they come. My wife can tell you that we'd be driving down the road and I would just almost stop breathing because I was having a panic attack because I had some kind of 
thought that maybe wasn't 100% entirely in line with the character of Christ. And uh, so I'm over there literally having a panic attack, unable to breathe. And this wasn't like this happened to me once. This was my daily experience several times a day. I prayed eight to 12 hours a day for a season of life. I fasted every other day for a season of life. And again, by season, I mean years. And this was just the way that I I lived in the way that I went after it. We could hardly go out on a date or do anything fun without me feeling like I had to be witnessing to somebody or it, it just, it, it dominated my life. Yes. So people who kind of know me wow. now and know my, my views and my stances on things, I think tend to think that I don't know about that world and they kind of want to inform me, you know, about, well, you know, you need to, you need to get right with God. I'm like, son, you are late to the party on that one. Cause I, I, I've, <laughs> I've been there, done that, and got the t-shirt and scars and everything else to prove it. Um, but you know, that was my life. And so early on okay. when we were in when we were in Florida, I began to have like I began to have like dreams. And you know, for some of those who maybe aren't all that mystically inclined, uh, maybe that sits weird with you, but this this is very much the way that I work. And I just began to have a series of dreams, and in these dreams, different teachers and preachers that I really admired and looked up to would just preach grace to me. And um, these individuals in real life would never (laughs) have dared uttered these words, but I think it was the Spirit's way of bypassing my biases by presenting this message to me through people that I already respected. And so it kind of got past my little mental gatekeeper and got into my heart a little bit. And this went on for quite a while. And, um, you know, I came to a point where I consciously renounced these experiences and rebuked them. And because I was afraid it was yeah. the devil trying to deceive me. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I'd anoint the headboard with the frankincense and myrrh oil and plead the blood and whatever. <laughs> and, and I am absolutely not kidding about that. <laughs> I always, I always had a bottle of frankincense and myrrh oil. On me. <laughs> but it, um, it's great when you eventually can laugh about those intense experiences. But, oh, it sure um, is. <laughs> in the moment, it was it was probably not the laughing matter. At, at the moment, it's not. But now I can't do anything but laugh at it. But um, <laughs> you know, but that that went on for a long time. So that was really my foundation. You know, those are those are my roots. And when we we came back home and came on staff as pastors, again, I just had this really intense disposition. This is still the way I operated and still the way I worked and still the way I ran the ministries that I ran. Everything was based on these principles and it looked like this. It was, uh, it was a reflection of who I was, you know, and somewhere in there, this message of grace that again, through those dreams bypassed my little mental guardian and got into my heart. At some point they started, that started to, um, resurrect inside of me or blossom, I suppose. Yes. And it and it was it was when things took a turn because I kind of lived, if I'm being honest with you, uh, a semi-charmed life. I mean, I certainly didn't grow up like living in the lap of luxury or anything, but I was I, I didn't ever I, I never knew difficult times. I just I just didn't. Either financially or emotionally or anything else. I mean I was doing a number on myself spiritually, but at the time I didn't recognize that as being damaging. And I, I, you know, but things in life, you're an adult now, you're married, you've got kids, you got bills to pay, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Life started doing what life starts to do. And I really, I don't know, it was at that point that I started, that that stuff started to come alive in me. And I started to realize my need for grace. And 
and recognize whatever, all this stuff. So what happened then, and I won't go into all and that what, because I've- What would I'm you sorry, yeah. kind of characterize with uh, as the, the key difference in this grace message that started coming to you through these dreams compared to what you experienced up to today? It was honestly, and this sounds very basic to the point of being banal at this point, but it was just simply the message that I'm unconditionally loved. I mean, that's really all it was. And sometimes in these dreams, there would be theological language and words and things like that used that at the time I didn't recognize or realize. Maybe I knew it. Maybe it was in my subconscious, but it wasn't anything that I, you know, so there was that kind of a dimension to it, but it was really just this idea that you're unconditionally loved and you're forgiven. And because I, I, like I said, my personality, it can be obsessive if I leave it unchecked and I'm, I'm much more healthy now than I was in my twenties. But I mean, I would, I was every 10 seconds praying for forgiveness and pleading the blood over my, I mean, to the point where it was just, it was maddening. And just to know that you don't have to do that. You're okay. You're safe and you're sound. I mean, it was revolutionary. It sounds like pablum now, but at the time, good God. I mean, that was, I mean, it it may as well have been another gospel because it really was compared to the one I was preaching. And um, so, you know, that really started to shake me. And one thing that it also did and I won't belabor that point too much because I've written about that at length and spoken about it at length, but it 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 put my soul at ease and, and, and put my soul at rest to the point where questions that I would not have allowed myself to ask in the past, I could now ask mm-hmm. because I did not have that fear that asking such questions will result in me roasting over eternal flames or something or what or opening a door to the devil and unleashing you know, curses in my life or whatever. And when I was actually just allowed to sit still and be still and know who God was, questions started to come to me. And at first I resisted. Again, at first I did the equivalent of, uh, of anointing the headboard with, uh, frankincense and myrrh. But uh, eventually when, when the fear really began to dissipate and I felt the freedom to ask these questions, I, well, I allowed myself to ask these questions and in the questioning I found my faith actually sort of deteriorating and falling apart. And that seems maybe antithetical to grace. I'm talking about having these like experiences with God and grace and the love of God and being accepted. So it sounds like how could that lead you to a point where your faith is deteriorating? But it's the, it was the sort of faith that I practiced, you know, um, GK Chesterton said that angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And he says that, in a in in a when he's talking about how the, the the amount of weight we put on a thing um will you know if you put too much weight too much excess importance on a thing um you basically create the potential for it to fall and for it to fall hard and uh, I, mm-hmm. I think that's why american christianity our ministers if our ministers do something that we do every day we call it a moral failure or a leader who fell and it causes uproar and heartbreak and people to like become disillusioned. And it's like, it's because of the excess importance we place upon an individual. So anything that you put excessive importance on, you create the potential for it to fall and for it to fall hard and to crash. Yeah. And that was the sort of yeah. faith that I had. It was so dense and heavy because of all of the excessive and obsessive importance I placed on it. It could not mm-hmm. but fall. It was destined 
to fall. That's just the way, that's just the way it was going. And, you know, it's like Nietzsche in the beginning of will to power spoke of Western Christianity. And he says that, you know, this, um, this, this idea that Western Christianity has, that God is truth, the recoil stroke of that will be that everything is false, you know, that, so like my faith had built into it, this, this crash, you know, and it's like, there's the old, Mm. you know, alchemical axiom that, um, that everything that we think of as being opposites, it's actually the same thing. It just differs by degree. So like here in Michigan last week, it was like 40 degrees all week. And this week it's in the eighties, you know? So when we wake up and there's that drastic temperature shift, it doesn't shock us because it's, it's the weather. It, it's, it's the same thing. It just varies by degree. If I woke up tomorrow morning and there were like, I don't know, dinosaurs in my front lawn, that would shock me. But a, a change in weather doesn't shock me because it's the same thing. It just varies by degrees. Dinosaurs in my lawn would be a whole nother thing entirely. So like we think that nihilism and a, a, a hyper meaning based spirituality are like two totally different things, but they're really not. They're the same thing. They just differ by degree. And so my faith was, it was always going to lead me to this place because it was built into it because of the excess importance. And all it was going to take was life to do the little dance on my head that life tends to do on our, dance on our head sometimes. And it was going to come to this and it did, it came to that. And so I found myself with nary a shred of faith left. It, 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 it just, it fell apart in my hands and I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And, um, I remember, and I write about this in the intro to my book, my last book, I wrote the atheistic theist that I remember, you know, at the time, um, hearing, you know, about Richard Dawkins and the book, the God delusion. And I started looking into actual, you know, the new atheists and all these guys. And I was listening to all these debates and watching all these videos on YouTube. I don't think there's one on YouTube that I have not watched. And I, um, I snuck off to Barnes and Noble one day because I wanted to buy this book and, um, I didn't want to buy it on Kindle because then my wife would see that the money left the bank account and then she would ask, Oh, what'd you buy? And so I went up there Uh. and, and, or it would show up at her. Yeah, I, I was being sneaky because I didn't want her to know. I wasn't being open with anybody about this because, you know, now online with Facebook and social media, this kind of story seems like it's a dime a dozen. But at the time I didn't know anybody who was going through this and I didn't know anybody I could talk to. So I snuck up to Barnes and Noble. I went to the like one shelf long um, atheist section that we have there. And I grabbed a copy of The God Delusion. And then I sandwiched it in between a copy of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which I already had, and another <laughs> Christian book. And I kind of sandwiched it in between those those two. So if I saw anybody from church there and they asked me, what are you doing buying Richard Dawkins? I could they wouldn't see it or I could just, I don't know, whatever. So I bought it and I snuck out to the car with it. Like I had bought, uh, I don't know, like I was buying liquor or pornography or something. And I'm like hiding it in this bag, you know? (laughs) And, um, and I like go upstairs in the bathroom and was like thumbing through the pages and reading it. And I'd be up there for like 30 minutes and the kids like, dad, what are you doing in there? And like, cause I didn't want anyone to know that I was (laughs) reading this or looking into it. And you know, now in retrospect, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. So this is a whole different level of questioning your answers because, yeah. um, you know, sometimes when we speak about questions, people might think, okay, I want to kind of adjust my views. Maybe maybe there's some room for improvement mm-hmm. in um, what I already believe. Mm-hmm. But the kind of question 
you are uh, exploring is something that completely breaks the mold yeah. of what you were used and um it is that kind of depth of question that i think brings about true change or, mm -hmm. or transformation because it's not just i know that uh, you, you know in uh, uh, in the intro to your book you make reference to that uh verse of you cannot put new wine into old wine skins and i think that's a beautiful example of mm maybe trying to just adjust some of your thoughts, but we'll keeping the that. framework mm. the yeah. same. Yeah. But it's a whole new level to transform the whole framework to yeah. really question whether this whole thing makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it did begin with just sort of, poking around and examining just some of my um, received and inherited doctrines, you know, it did begin with a lot of that. Like, mm -hmm. does this atonement theory work? Does this idea of the afterlife actually work? Is this, you know, is Genesis literal? You know, it did kind of begin with a lot of those questions, but then, you know, again, it's in the intro to will to power. And in the same context, Nietzsche says that, that the God of Christianity of Western Christianity, the kind that he was observing in his day, he says, in essence, will eventually, this Christianity will die at the hands of its own morality because mm. the, this, this deep desire for truth is inherent to Christianity. And so if you follow it and you really follow it out to its logical conclusion, it's not just going to lead you to ask questions of particular doctrines, but it's going to eventually cause you to question the whole thing. And another thing he says is that if you find that like the thing that you thought most stable and 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 steady and the thing that upholds existence when you like when that thing seems to fail you well all lesser things then automatically just fail you as well you know and so some of these doctrines i think that i placed such a heavy importance on when they failed me it was like everything else just kind of started to fall apart too and you know i did it, even my own experiences of God, everything, even the very dreams I told you about at the beginning that led me to believing in grace, which allowed me to ask these questions that brought me to hiding Richard Dawkins in between C.S. Lewis. Um, even that I was just questioning everything. I mean, it was just all, it was just all liquid and everything I thought solid was just liquid. And I didn't, I didn't know what I believed anymore. And I had a hard time preaching. I had a hard time, um, I just had a very difficult time knowing what to do with all of this. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, how do you preach? How do you get up and, and preach? Well, you, you kind of, uh, you end up being very apophatic in, in, in what you're preaching and that you're kind of telling people constantly what God isn't because deep inside, I'm still, I'm not like 100% sold that, that God doesn't real, that God's not real. Yes. But I'm, I, 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 what I can say at this point is that at least God is not this. And if God is something else, I'll find that out. But for now, here's what I can tell you that God is not. And so I did a lot of preaching along those lines and uh, didn't, but I kept open that altar of suspicion that I always call the altar in Acts 17 to the unknown God. I kept that open in my heart. Like, well, I will, I will hold space for something to appear that maybe is outside of, you know, my, my past experiences and whatever. So that was, you know, that was a long experience and it was a dark experience. And in the intro to the book, I relate that to 
Jesus' words about the loss of the bridegroom. And, and you can't fast or mourn while the bridegroom's with you, but when the bridegroom's taken, then you will mourn and then you will fast. And it's right after that that he begins to speak about the new wineskin and the new garment. And I often just use that as an illustration for you have to, in order to have a capacity to receive God in a form that's outside of, well, what you know and understand, to have that um, wineskin that can contain a new revelation, you have to completely lose the bridegroom and you have to mourn that loss in order for this yeah. to, to, to come forth, you know? And I really did. I, I lost it. It, it. it it was gone. It was just, I couldn't get a hold of it anymore. Everything. It just, I lost and it. it on, and on that point, Jeff, because I think that's such a huge thing because you know, I often hear of people going, oh, well, that one's deconstructing this, and it, almost as if deconstruction is a fashionable thing. But, right. you know, nobody who is earnestly, like you say, invested in this thing called faith, um, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't something that they just frivolously decide one day, well, I'm just going to change my belief system. And yeah. our be- our beliefs are so subjective, you know, that Mm -hmm. we cannot go through this process of questioning our most fundamental beliefs without ourselves um, being deconstructed in that sense. Um, And and I think of what Jesus says about, you know, unless you lose yourself, you you will not find the self that is really worth finding. And it is so linked to like you've mentioned um, in your book as well, being an atheist um, in terms of, and I think if you could just go into that a little bit, because I found it so fascinating the way you described that um, in terms of the early church and, you know, how how they were called Christians, but the, at the same time they were labeled atheists. Yeah. Um, and, and why? Right. You know, and, and it was, it was one of the main accusations leveled at the early church is that they were, atheists. And they were atheists because they did not believe in the gods of culture. And also, it wasn't just that they didn't believe in the gods of culture, but that the god they did embrace um, was so radically different from the... It wasn't just like the gods of the culture with a different name, you know, like the the Greek and Roman gods. There's correlations there. But this is this is something totally totally new. This was not like a projection of already existing religions. This was a projectile that seemed to just come totally from the outside. And in here you have this, this human God in Jesus who, who, I mean, I know you guys know what I'm saying, but it was so radically different and revolutionary that to the theists of the day, this may as well have just been atheism because it's so radically different from the popular theisms of the day. What else could this be? This is atheism. You're unbelievers, you know? And and it, and I know that we've all probably experienced that same kind of reaction, maybe from our fundamentalist friends and or family members, is that um, what we look like on the other side of, of that experience of quote-unquote deconstruction is so, so radically different that to them, you may as well just be an atheist. And I've come to simply embrace the title, which is why I called my book The Atheistic Theist. It's that, no, you're you're right. In some sense, I am. I the God that, you know, and I always use the illustration of Jesus on on the cross, he cries out the opening line of Psalms 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course we know mm-hmm. Jesus 
was not forsaken of the Father. We know that Jesus himself told us twice prior to his crucifixion that while everyone else would leave him, the Father would not. So we know that. But Jesus still felt that absence of God, whether or not it was truth, because he was carrying our sorrows. And and Chesterton in Orthodoxy, again, writes that let the atheist himself choose a God, because only one God in human history ever himself became an atheist. And that was Christ on the cross who literally felt the the absence. He stood in the presence of his own absence, in a sense. And if you put the the the, the gospel accounts together, which I know that's not how necessarily you should do it, but just if you do, at the time Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that same moment, the veil in the temple is torn. Again, chronologically, that might not work exactly, but if you put the texts together, which you're not supposed to do, when he cries that out, the temple veil is torn. And when the temple veil is torn, a lot of times people speak of that as though that's like, well, you know, um, now we can come in or maybe now God can finally get out because he's been living in that those cramped quarters all these years. Yeah, but what we often overlook and, and don't talk about is that when the temple veil was torn, it wasn't just a symbol of us being able to go in or God being able to leave. It was a revelation that the Ark of the Covenant was not behind the veil. It wasn't there. Yeah, And so then at the same time, Jesus then says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it's revealed that there's a certain God who can only forsake you because that God does not exist. And it's at that point that it dawns on us that, oh, while I thought you were sealed up in some temple somewhere absent from me and in existing apart from my sufferings, the truth is you're right here in them being crucified with me. And that's a God that's into whose hands I can place my spirit. And so that's kind of the experience that I underwent in that I, I, I you know, I, I don't want to say this arrogantly, but it does in some way feel to me like that old God image has been just crucified. It's, it does not seem to exist anymore. Wow. And, and, and um, that is a completely new way of perceiving of the presence of God. Yes. A, a God that previously we could not conceive. It's a God that we can actually only experience yes. when the limitations of our, uh, our previous structures of understanding and our previous beliefs, they actually got to dissolve Yes, to experience God in this new way, mm-hmm. Jeff. I can't believe we've been we've been chatting for almost twenty six minutes. Um, yeah. So we're gonna uh, just do a conclusion now, and we will have to get you back for for our next podcast as well, because I'm getting excited about where <laughs> <laughs> this is leading, the, the discovery that it brings. But um, so we, we uh, unfortunately, at the end of our time, so thank you so much for this introduction. And we oh, can't wait you. to continue the conversation. Yes. Same, same. Thank you for joining us today. And please don't forget to subscribe on our website, QYourAPodcast.com.